0: American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. So one of the key, so I'll try to vary back and forth between our sense of the historiography, of how historians have talked about um, slavery, anti-slavery, and the coming of the war, and also, then enough basic history so that we have some, some things that we can pull back to. One of the crucial things that historians have, uh, you know, over the last, I mean, it's something that's been germinating uh, over the last hundred years, but that's really flourished over the last perhaps 40 or 50 years, is a sense of the breaking apart of the idea of slavery into the notion of slavery. And so that historians' increasing interest in not just particularizing, uh, sort of historians, you know, constant willingness to say, well, this isn't true for that county or this isn't true for this area, but also really trying to regroup together pieces of slavery based on different chronological, crop, and regional variations. So the single most important way in which um, a sense that of an older literature that kind of statically began in, in 1800, or even worse, in 1820 or 1830, and slavery exists and has already spread into the Mississippi Valley, and then go. You know, the single most important shift um, that historians have made over the last perhaps half century is to reorient and to try and put slavery back into global terms, um, both in broader um, and sort of you know, long histories of slavery in you know, many different, different periods and places, including sociological studies. Most famously, Orlando Patterson. Um, but also, of trying to place the United States to break out of the sense that the only things we need to know to tell the story of United States slavery, um, I'm going to try and avoid saying American slavery for the obvious reason, that the, that the only way to understand United States slavery is to begin in the United States. And instead, to understand the history of slavery in the United States as a part of a broader um, period in the history of slavery that eventually becomes continental American slavery and that has its roots in competition among European empires, in uh, conquest and intervention and trade in Africa, and in the, in, the, in the fight for control of the new world. And so in this, the sort of interest in the Atlantic slave trade portrayed statically here, the yellowish tinge makes it even uh, you know a little strange, right? But that while historians had long known this, And in fact, one of the most remarkable, and in some ways humbling things, is that even the really racist, nasty historians like Ulrich Phillips knew it. His book on American slavery begins in Africa. It doesn't begin in the way that we would portray Africa, but that in a certain way there was an era of cultural forgetting around World War II and a turning inward. That not only, so it's not that historians in some sense had to discover this, as much as they had to rediscover things um, that had been known, the great... Um, intervention of the last probably 40 years is the incredible expansion of knowledge about the African slave trade itself. So that rather than something that's invoked, that now we've got these extraordinary ways uh, being able to capture the interplay of different times, different places, and so to really see how the United States w- um, functions within that, what becomes the United States. Um, so this is an effort to visualize, some of you all have probably seen this as part of Slate Series, to efforts to visualize the African slave trade. You can see the counter of the year at the top. And these are the individual, uh, you know, v- the dots represent uh, groups that are coming over. Um, it's a way of sort of capturing the change over time. Um, and it's a way of giving movement, which I feel like that the static maps are the hardest thing for students to understand, um, so that they can really get a grasp of how powerful the early years are, how irrelevant in this sense the United States, what becomes the United States is to the, to the early years. Um, but also of the extraordinary quickening, because I think students, once they break out of the idea that some of them have that slavery only existed, say between 1800 and 1860, <laughs> then they can fall into an idea that then slavery is just a universal concept, that it never changes. And instead, I think one of the things that came out of the African uh, slave trade database and that this visualization kind of captures is how much ebbs and flows, different historical moments. There you get the glorious revolution creating a strange small you know uh, drop and then massive spike. Um, the increasing, though still relatively small, movement to different parts of the New World, including... To the north, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, yes, sorry about that. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll just let it play out for a minute, and then we'll go back to the static map. So I feel like for students, especially in a in a survey, um, the impact of it of the years ticking of the number of uh, the number of people, the range of places that they go. Um, in certain ways, it's not that it captured. Uh, new knowledge, because the slave trade database existed, as much as it's a way of representing that. Um, then we'll see, we'll at last get to, get to the revolution, um, the last burst between now and 1808. Um, they, it certainly hits home the incredible centrality of Saint-Domingue, um, as they're like, how is this one island getting so many of the ships? And we'll go into some of the things that this leads historians to emphasize. Um, And then also the realization as they come to 1807, 1808, and that last quick burst into the United States, um, the end of San Domingue, the movement to Cuba, but also of how long and how powerful slavery was. And I think that this also will speak to some one aspect of how the historiography of slavery has changed, which is a sense of the power and the vigor of slavery deep into the 19th century, um, including of the African slave trade, but also of purely domestic slavery, and a moving from seeing slavery as a dying institution, I'll come, as I'll come back to, to seeing it as one that's really thriving and in many ways growing. The last bit's into uh, into Cuba, um, and then 1860. So this is part of the Slate series that they did now, and uh, let me go back. So. Um, this helps to give some a different way of representing what we get statically here, which is the vast numbers of people, different estimates, 10, 11 million, um, the different range of places they end up, um, for students to see the people who come, who are brought forcibly to uh, what becomes the US, the colonies that become the United States, or a piece of a larger trade uh, that's shaping the entirety of the hemisphere and of Africa, as well as of Europe. Um, and also then to help us to capture what it was that specifically made. On the one hand, every comparison operates in two ways. On the one hand, to see what about um, the interest in embedding it in the global system helps us see what was common to the United States case, and also what was uncommon. And so I think that historians, are you, yeah? Oh, sorry, I just had a question about the, the numbers. Yes. Oh, interesting. So there's such a discrepancy, and, and I know this is the case all the numbers, in terms right. of the but that's more a double. That's a huge discrepancy. I don't have the exact answer to this question of where, where the two bases for those different numbers came from. I know when Curtin was building the slave trade database, he wanted to build upon, you know, to have every number correspond to a verifiable, yeah. right? And which means that it's inevitably going to have a smaller um, but then that he could defend each piece of it, right? And I don't know if the higher number comes from ones that are more extrapolations. I don't know. It's a good question. Um, so from this piece, then we get the sense of both how the U.S. is the slavery is developed, and the U.S. is embedded in this greater system, but also what makes it distinct, which goes back to something long known in the U.S. historiography, um, but reemphasized in many ways with histories of w- recent histories of work on gender and sexuality which is of the centrality of reproduction in the, Ameri- in the am- development of American slavery, what scholars used to and sometimes still call creolization, right? which is the fact that in this sort of classic comparison that Virginia receives one-eighth of the slaves of Jamaica um, by 1808, um, but has more total slave population. Um, there's been all kinds of interesting work, including by Jen Morgan at NYU, on investigating what were the roots of Uh, It had been presumed in the past that this is because um, slaves that arrived in the United States who were brought forcibly to the United States were disproportionately female because the United States was disproportionately, was uh, unprofitable relative to the incredible profits to be made in Jamaica, in Saint-Domingue, and later in Cuba. And there's some truth to that, uh, but Jen Morgan and others who've been studying the Caribbean have argued instead that there are more female slaves going to the Caribbean than we think, and that it's more about um, strategies to avoid reproduction, uh, infanticide, suicide, um, and so that it's not solely the gender imbalance, so that'll be a strong part of the case for Brazil. Um, but it's certainly a powerful factor in shaping the United States, that tobacco trade as profitable as it is, that first brings uh, slaves into Virginia, and Sea Island cotton and rice Um, are far less profitable than what's going on in the Caribbean. The rice trade out of South Carolina exists to feed the Caribbean, Uh, the the slaves in the plantations in the Caribbean. This draws in perhaps less than we used to think, but still a disproportionate number of female slaves, also the relatively... Um, higher chance of survival in the continental United States, in part because of different disease environments, uh, means that people are surviving into maturity, and so that you get this development very quickly of large-scale second, third, eventually fourth, fifth generation African-American slaves born in the US, creolized, speaking creolized forms of English, um, and increasingly practicing uh, syncretic creolized cultures in the United States. And this creating one of the great separations between how we think about slavery shaping in the United States and the shape of slavery elsewhere. Another important one being about the separation in the size. The US plantations, um, on the whole, were vastly smaller than the Caribbean counterparts. Um, many of which were increasingly owned by uh, British islands by people who were resident in London. Many of which were owned by people who had almost never been there, managed uh, distantly by overseers or by younger sons sent. American U.S. slaveholders were uh, disproportionately likely to live on site um, in uh, plantations with over 20 slaves, disproportionately likely to actually be out in the field. And this creates an experience of interaction. This is not to say that this made it better or kinder, in many ways it might have made it crueler and more interactive. But that the level of interaction, uh, for worse or for better, was much more intimate between U.S. slaveholders and Caribbean slaveholders, um, the U.S. slaveholders and slaves than in the Caribbean or in other parts of the New World, in part because of the size. And the other great transformation, and this is something that in works with the uh, national parks that I do, I'm a leader of a theme study on Emancipation and Reconstruction of the National Park Service, is balancing between two pieces of the story, both of which are crucial and both of which are hard to keep in sight, one of which is that um, slavery had been a powerful force in the North, including especially right here in New York City, and the strong denial of the roots of slavery in in the northern United States. Certainly, a powerful part of, uh, of U.S. culture. A strong denial of the existence of slavery in the West, a powerful part of Western culture, as they sort of lands without that original sin, they have other original sins. Um, but you know, as was most uh, vividly um, demonstrated here in the slavery in New York, um, both not only the existence of slavery, but also the fascination of contemporaries with this sort of seemingly to uh, to non-professionals surprising idea of the power of slavery in New York City itself and its environs, the power of slavery in Rhode Island and New Jersey, uh, and the persistence of slavery in certain parts of the North. And so this has been a crucial thing to root in as part of something that I'll get to in a little bit more detail in a minute, which is the sense of the national reach of slavery um, that historians have gotten much more interested in. And there's a whole lot of works that I'll come back to, um, and I'm glad to expand on in questions, on trying to understand the way that slavery was embedded in a national economy, um, both in the presence in the the early period of slaves in the North, but also in the centrality of slaves um, and of um, aspects of the economy, one step connected to slaves, insurance upon slaves, ships that moved slaves, goods that were sold to slave plantations, um, upon many northern cities, nowhere more so than here in New York City, Um, But that also, in many ways, were also central to cities that we think of as being one step more removed from slavery, including Boston and Philadelphia. Um, How much movement was there uh, people a force movement from North America to the Caribbean and then back? Once people got where they were going, they stayed there? Or were there people who owned properties, let's say, in Jamaica and New Jersey, and kind of moved? That's a very good question. Um, so there are a couple of different ways that people have tried to cut into this. Um, one of the interesting things, Brett Rushforth has done an interesting book on the shipment of natives from, by the French from the interior of the U.S. to the Caribbean into, into slavery in the Caribbean, and certainly there are, especially in the earlier years and especially before the revolution, um, people who pick up and move on and of more common families to have. Holdings in different parts of the British possession. The American Revolution makes that more difficult both logistically and in terms of clarity of property rights. You do get a lot of American planters who have interest in plantations overseas. Um, but that sort of by the 1820s or 1830s they'd be less likely to be moving their slaves in part because Britain is starting to patrol the oceans and say that this movement of slaves is not uh, you know, is not legal. so it exists but it's diminished. What you do get are these later scale, large scale movements, the most dramatic being the movement of slaves from Saint-Domingue by planters during the period of the Haitian Revolution. The largest number to Cuba, and vast numbers of slaves moved from Saint-Domingue to Cuba, um, but many others to uh, Philadelphia, and especially to New Orleans, and the way that the southern US slave trade really develops from this, US sugar trade develops from this influx of planters forcibly moving their slaves from Haiti. Um, but by the 1800s, it's harder to, to sustain this sort of ease of access. Slaves are property, but they're not moving like property in other ways, and it's also a regime in which many empires deny the rights of non-subjects to hold defensible title and property. Right. That the only way to hold property in Cuba is to is to renounce your citizenship, swear allegiance to the crown, and become a Catholic. And so the ease, of, it's this sense, it's not a purely, it's a global set of markets, but it's not a, Contemporary globalization, where you flattened out different legal regimes and property regimes. Um, this interest in and so historians have done a lot of work, and I think it's made an important move into popular consciousness about the impact of slavery in the North and in shaping both the national economy and then its on the ground its presence. Um, it's also raised then questions that'll that I'll come back to in a minute um, about how to balance our understanding with this to hold at once the two points in our mind, the one that slavery was not solely a Southern phenomenon, the second that that doesn't mean the North and South were indistinguishable. And here we work within a series of constructs and concepts um, that in many ways we do inherit from uh, the anti-slavery and pro-slavery writers. Many of these people were fascinated by history. They were amateur, sometimes professional historians, and what we would call sort of proto-sociologists. And in many ways they established the idea of a firm American regionalism, which I'll skip ahead to show an example of how this gets portrayed, of a firm American regionalism, in many ways that we use now, is a product of this kind of moral politics, which we can't see here, but it says, the curse of slavery, God's <laughs> blessings of liberty, right? Why, you know, this clear sense that resonates and keeps sort of surfacing and being, you know, sort of questioned and resurfacing of the powerful dynamic being not just slavery, but the way slavery creates competing regions, reinforced by the fact that those regions then go to war, and 720,000 people died, mostly, not exclusively, in the you know a divided up by region. Um, you know, creates this ongoing question of the sort of tension between understanding how the North is implicated in slavery and understanding this tension, um, this this sort of fundamental fact of the centrality of uh, of regional division. This one uh, you can see is sort of Satan's region burning in hell, (laughs) um, which is during the sectional crisis, but before secession, which you can tell because Kentucky and Missouri, right, instead of being in limbo or depending on your theological bent, you know, purely in hell, right? So by 1861, they might have been, you know, uh, receiving prayers for their services. The second major thing that historians have focused on and this I'm gonna to have to do more quickly, um, is the idea of a second Middle Passage. That the extraordinary movement, that we do think now is slavery is much more mobile, um, and slaves is forcibly moved much more often than we did in the past, and the centrality of the slave trade, but the central question of that was less about moving people to the Caribbean and moving people to the Mississippi Valley. Um, so what our Berlin called the second Middle Passage moves a million people from the eastern seaboard forcibly, into the Mississippi Valley, and it creates, you know, expanded, aided by the Louisiana Purchase, the um, as well as by the cotton gin, it creates this real second slavery, a slavery that's of upcountry cotton rather than of sea isle cotton, where tobacco and, and, uh, and other crops are diminished radically, and rice and their importance, and instead this upcountry cotton that can be ginned profitably, and then moves slavery deep into the heart of uh, here portrayed of slaves in a coffle being moved by, uh, you know, by a whip-bearing driver. Um, and it moves slavery, as you can see in this set of maps. Um, the deep penetration between the 20s and 30s of slaves deep into the Mississippi Valley. And if this is a transformative moment in American history. And one that this part of ticking the clock of articulating this change over time, that the slavery that formed the basis of the Confederacy was not an abstract or universal slavery, but one that was forged out of, a strong, out of a strong interconnection between economics, technology, and politics that made it possible to first dispossess the native lands in those areas, and then to forcibly move a million people from one area to another in order to create a new political geography of the country. Um, this has helped us with, from the time that, um, so as we put these things in, uh, in, in motion, then this vision of a slavery itself in motion is dynamic. Helps us articulate something that had been articulated in the Civil War, but in many ways had faded out of the literature, um, which is that if the anti-slavery, anti-slavery critics had written and then written into history the idea that the North represented bourgeois modernity. And then the articulation of the pain of slavery and the suffering of slavery was a way of articulating how those were pieces of pre-modernity. Those were things society needed to transform as the North had in this vision transformed. Of course, we can see the way they had blind spots on labor, et cetera, et cetera. There were two important Southern responses to this. For a long time after the war, the literature was dominated by a response that articulated that the South had created in certain ways an exemption to a bourgeois modernity. This is articulated in parts of John Calhoun's um, writings, though not all, um, as well as some other Southern intellectuals. And then this vision created the idea that we get picked up and turned in many different ways uh, by the Beards, is the Civil War as a fight between industrialization and agriculture? If there's one thing the Civil War is not, it's a fight between industrialization, which doesn't exist, and agriculture, where the most you know, which is stronger in the North and in the South. But it feeds into all of this, so that's, that's one thing you know that it can't be. But there's it feeds it it fed into all of these visions that tried to articulate a war between essentially the the present articulated as the future and the present articulated as the past. But what? white southerners had said at the time, and took a long time to work back into the literature in a circuitous way, was a different vision of what the South was. Some of this, a vision of the South as itself, expressing in slavery in the South, an alternative vision of modernity. Some of this began to bubble up, had been working through the literature, in a long literature of African American literature of anti-slavery, starting with George Washington Williams, now, I fear absurdly going to be portrayed as Tarzan's sidekick <laughs> in the new Tarzan movie. But one of the sort of extraordinary figures in American history uh, soldier, historian, uh, state legislator, um, scientist uh, travels to Africa to report on the Congo. This extraordinary person, John Franklin wrote a little biography of him um, and really articulated the idea of articulating an anti-slavery but also a vision of, of slavery that articulated the capacity for black agency, picked up, he was sort of a, more of a classic liberal, but picked up in a Marxist literature of the 30s, most famously um, by W.E.B. Du Bois, by, but also by others, and then reinterpreted into a more liberal literature by John Hope Franklin and others in the 1960s, that by looking at slave experience, both they captured. Uh, Two pieces of that came out that had a powerful impact, one of which in certain ways in contradiction or at least in tension with each other. One of which that moved through then into the University of Maryland Freedom and Southern Society project and found expression in a series of books, uh, Steve Hahn's Nation Under Our Feet, Parts of Eric Foner's Reconstruction, I Berlin's work, Stephanie Camp's, which Josh and I were just talking about, which is remarkable in lots of ways, Um, and that articulated the capacity of slaves within slavery to build spaces for communal formation, um, for articulation of their own politics, um, and of their own actions, both shaping the lives of slaves, but also shaping Southern society. At the same time, another strand, and sometimes intertwined within the literature, was that by reading the experiences of slaves, they came to see a vision of the South um, in which slavery was much more mechanized, routinized, much more efficient, Uh, much more seemingly contemporary and modern in the experiences of slaves recounted um, than people had understood before. And this then became a bulwark against the idea that had always been present in the literature, um, which is that slavery, whether it was, you know, both for its apologists and for its critics, was something of the past and was dying. And that it picked up on this sort of vision of modernity against the past. And coming both out of that interest in the experience of slaves and the ways that they talk about the extraordinary efficiency, kind of ruthless efficiency of slavery. And then merging in with the developing literature on capitalism, we now have an articulation of sort of more the James Henry Hammond argument of of pro-slavery southerners of the 1850s. That slavery in the south is the future. That it is the most capitalist form of production in the world because it extends the market to all, not to everybody, but it extends the market beyond where the market extends. That it therefore creates a driver of economic production that the free labor cannot. And that it represents not a vision of a reactionary um, anti-capitalist past, but it creates a vision of a slavery capitalist modernity moving into the future. And as historians, Ed Baptist, Walter Johnson, uh, many others, as historians have begun to articulate this, Sven Becker, many others, um, it has led us back to the question that sits that unites these two, of how do we understand the development of slavery, how do we understand what I've just touched on because of uh, time constraints But have trying to develop the history of the anti-slavery, and how do they come together to help us understand the question of why the Civil War came. Um, because amongst those has always been this tension Uh, As those have interacted, there's always been the question of, was the Civil War a fundamental conflict, the sort of classic historiographical division, uh, between fundamentalists, not meaning in religious terms, but a fundamental and in some ways unavoidable conflict between irreconcilable differences? Or was it something that came out of failures of the political system? Was it avoidable? Was it the product of a blundering generation of historians? A blundering generation of politicians, historians have a lot to answer for. (laughs) (laughs) Had we been able to cause civil wars? No doubt we would have, but we lacked the capacity. And these things have always interacted. If we understood slavery itself as backward, inefficient dying, that fed into was a way in which nationalist but southern apologetics, like Ulrich Phillips at Columbia, or Woodrow Wilson and others could say the Civil War was foolish, not because slavery was bad, but because slavery was gonna die. Anti-slavery people were crazy because they forced a conflict you didn't need to have. And what was interesting is how much of that continued even as the moral terms reversed into this presumption of a slavery that was weak, that was fading, that was dying, that was uh, anti-capitalist, anti-modernist, including allegedly with the Marxist spin by Eugene Chavez. Historians now are much more interested in, arguably to a fall, in understanding slavery as powerful, as growing, as thriving. And at once this makes anti-slavery more imaginable and more easy to understand the tendency within anti-slavery literature now, Caleb McDaniel you read, Jim Oaks, many others, to understand anti-slavery as on guard and believing that they needed to fight a war or else they were gonna be, be overwhelmed by slavery. But it also raises a question that hadn't in certain ways had been subsumed by the modernity versus the past, which is if both the North and the South are deeply capitalist, if the North is deeply embedded in the economy of slavery, even after it moves slavery down, why do they go to war? And this is the question that largely the new work on the history of slavery and capitalism has totally failed to address, um, to address why once you prove the interconnections with the North, you then face this big roadblock. If the North is so interconnected with slavery, why would they go to war? And I think this is the point at which the reconciliation of a new history of slavery, uh, developing a new history of anti-slavery that sees it as more political, committed, less about radical or reform or separation from politics and more broad-based, is gonna have to some way come together to figure out how to explain then the coming of the Civil War as a fight between competing systems of modernity capitalism. I don't think that's hard if you look at how people talk about other revolutions generally is about competing forms of modernity 1688 in Britain or by the by certain phases of the French Revolution as fights between different visions of the future rather than fights between a kind of forward looking reactionary past but it's what remains in that sense to be done. There's also all kinds of different work that's going on in all the thousands of different ways but Don is helpfully reminding me that I should wrap up So, so make sure that we've got time for questions I'll call. Uh, I'll call it a cut here, um, and uh, be glad to take questions on any of this. And then, if anything bubbles up or you don't get now, we can talk about it in lunchtime. <laughs> now, to me was reading the and gotcha, <laughs> Reconstruction book where um, white former slave owners who are now employing their former enslaved people for wages are complaining about how inefficient they are and that there's a labor shortage. Even though there's just as many, well, fewer women in the fields, but there's basically just as many people working, but they're working in a human pace. Rather than a mechanism so that mechanism case. So I mean that those two things together to me at least made that sense of the slavery machine really, you know, real. In a way that I haven't thought about just in terms of slavery. Once you get to reconstruction, it's like yeah, you're not gonna get as much out of people that you're not looking. So this cuts to so first let me uh, set the stage. So Ed Baptist uh, wrote a book um, uh, two years ago now that half has never been told um, that really think, takes the argument as far as it can go, and in certain areas much farther than it can go, um, about the centrality of, the cap- a, of a, not just a capitalist, but also a highly focused upon efficiency um, in using that to create what he calls a whipping machine, an idea of a constant stepping up of the demands upon slaves um, that in certain ways is meant to sort of I think even explicitly at a certain point that to pattern slaveholders off of contemporary uh, consultants,
1: uh, you know,
0: the, you know, this sort of constant, you know, speeding up, um, and um, in certain ways it very, I mean, it sort of very clearly articulates something that had been, despite the title, very well known, um, which is about the cruelties of slavery, um, but it also turns out that many of those works have then gone to articulate. The spaces that slaves created for themselves, both in Ed's book and in certainly is even more in Walter Johnson's book, we've made a turn against agency, to where slaves are sort of almost completely um, crushed by this oppressive system, and the space for the meaning of slave agency is dramatically reduced. Um, the, there's, a base, there's a couple of basic interpretive questions um, about how to understand this aspect of efficiency in slavery. Um, so Ed. Um, First of all, there's evidentiary questions about whether he read it, whether he quotes things correctly, whether there's some significant evidentiary questions, but but it comes down to an interpretive question, which is if slaves have been um, pushed toward these inhuman levels of of efficiency, then you would expect to see a dramatic crash upon freedom uh, in the amount of cotton that's produced. We can't get down to cotton per hand per hour, but certainly in the amount of cotton per hand. And then the theory of the free labor people, that people work harder with incentives than with punishment, would be wrong. It might be wrong. But the fact is that the Emancipation South produces, post Emancipation South produces more cotton than the slave South. With fewer people out there and with a strong belief that they're working fewer hours. And this is a fundamental fact that Ed never confronts. Um, The belief from older economic studies that he doesn't cite in May not have read is that slaves reduce their work from 12 to 13 hours to eight. They use that time for broad, what economists call leisure, which includes education and family, you know, not TV time, right? <laughs> you, know, but, but, you know, that they they work more efficiently in freedom in order to claim more time for their own self-development and family, and they do it by producing more cotton. And the crisis of the South comes from overproduction of cotton, rather than. And this is a fundamental challenge that the efficiency of slavery people are gonna to have to work through, which is that, that complaint which is common to all post-emancipation societies, um, you know, that they're demoralized, this and that. In the US South, at least, doesn't match the actual outcome. And how to reconcile those two. Both things can't be true. They can't be pushed to inhuman levels of efficiency that are released and also then voluntarily produce even more without having to figure out some way to reconcile the two questions. Yeah, I, first of all, say I really appreciate the speaking of this. Oh, am sorry, it's went so fast. It's a, a breath achievement. Um, but I'm just curious, and I know you have the slide up there, in right? Yeah. Disaffection and resistance play in convincing Southerners that this movement is going to ultimately bring about the, the demise of the system, efficient or not efficient. Now, this is a very important question. Something I had to move to ask. There is a, there is certainly there's a strong interest from Du Bois um, and and earlier, and then. Powerfully expressed through the works affiliated with the Freedom of Southern Society Project, which is a long-standing project based in Maryland, um, led often by Arnold Berlin and Leslie Rowland, but including in its group the Lib, Steve Hahn, Barbara Fields, Julie Seville, a whole range of, uh, of historians. Um, that have been exploring what Steve Hahn called the Civil War as, as the world's largest slave rebellion. And of uh, this having two contexts, one of which being um, that the increase, the perceived increase in the number of rebellions um, over the course between the 1820s and the 1850s being one of the pieces that drives planters to believe that they have to take extraordinary steps to preserve slavery. The other being about the, the slaves assertiveness in, in shutting down or trying to shut down what Du Bois called the general strike shutting down a plantation system and turning the war toward their ends, creating itself not a sort of absorption into a national cause, um, but a rebellion of its own that the national cause tries to grab onto and to steer. I would say that there's no question, there's a strong degree of questions about how rebellious the U.S. South was compared to other slave societies. The U.S. has fewer large-scale slave revolts than most other societies, and this is a product of the difference between Plantations with 500 slaves and almost no whites that you can develop much larger scale revolts than you can in the US South. But then, and also about whether the speed is actually increasing or whether there's a kind of fear and rumor that's spreading. What's absolutely spreading is the sense that they have of the interaction between the domestic problem and the national problem, which is that slaves they believe are revolting because they're being penetrated by the war people are are coming through. And so for them, they're part of, sometimes the literature separates these two. But I think for many planners, it's two sides of the same question. Both the slaves are more rebellious, and anti-slavery is getting more fierce and more determined. And these aren't separate lines of interpretation, they're the same interpretation. Both things are pushing each other. And there's no question but that the sort of incredible overreach that slave owners make out of this fear to the the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, there's no question that this transforms um, a kind of um, anti-slavery in the North. The presence in Boston, the U.S. Army, um, marching a slave from the courthouse, a runaway slave, a slave man, Anthony Burns, to the courthouse through tens of thousands of Bostonians, the ships to be delivered back to Virginia, radicalizes that kind of middle road northern population that was never gonna be you know, sort of hardcore reform abolitionist become aware of why the political power of planters is intervening where they are. And you see this played out, the Burns case is the most famous, but in many ways you see it played out even more dramatically in Southern Pennsylvania with these invasions of Marylanders in to capture slaves and bring them back and the sort of what Stanley Herald called an ongoing border war in Maryland and Pennsylvania that isn't as vast and large as the the border war between Missouri and Kansas, um, but is a series of consistent bloodshed over this question about what power slave owners have to reach into the and what this creates. So in this sense, I think many of them see, many planters see this as an interactive. The slaves are more rebellious and the anti-slavery Northerners are pushing them more and they're part of the same thing. The anti-slavery Northerners, in their view, are encouraging. This historians don't generally believe that they needed the encouragement. But that the rebelliousness of the South is also selling slaves and the runway and so on. Is also encouraging the development of more clearly articulated anti slavery in the North. That's this dynamic process they want that. to have. All right. All right, we'll talk more at lunch. Thank you so much.